Welcome back. Over the next 90 minutes, we will bring you the panel discussion, Combating Sepsis is a Great Patient Safety Strategy. We have a fabulous lineup of panelists, and the session is moderated by our very own Abdulayla Al-Hasawi from Saudi Arabia. Before we get into it, a word from BD, our exclusive sponsor for this session. All over the world, customers and their patients rely on BD to help improve people's health. Every day, every person at BD has a chance to make a difference, a chance to bring to life what we stand for. At BD, we are advancing the world of health. Now, over to Abdulayla to get this session going. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Abdulayla al uh, I'm the Vice President of the Global Sepsis Alliance for International Affairs, and uh, on this very exciting session, I'm going to be uh, actually wearing two hats. Uh, I am uh, honored to be moderating the session, but at the same time, I have uh, a quick uh, presentation uh, about the quality improvement initiatives uh, for sepsis, and it's very much related to, to the title of the session, which is uh, uh, how combating sepsis is a, is a great patient safety uh, initiative. Uh, I would like to thank our sponsor, BD, for their continuous uh, sponsorship and support of the sepsis work uh, throughout the globe. Uh, so I will start with my presentation, uh, and then afterwards I will introduce uh, our uh, panelists for a, hopefully a great conversation. So make sure that while you're listening to the conversation, uh, as well as to the uh, presentation, if you have any questions that you can type in your, your, your questions uh, at the allocated time. So without a further ado, uh, I am going to start my presentation. So the title of my presentation is how quality improvement in sepsis works at the facility in the national level. And I'm gonna be basically talking about two aspects. One is to remind myself and everyone about uh, the uh, resolution that got passed back in 2017. And then I'm gonna talk about the sepsis quality improvements starting from the facility level all the way up to, to the national and the global level. So just a quick uh, word about sepsis. Sepsis is a major global health uh, problem. Uh, every year, up to 50 million people are uh, afflicted by sepsis and uh, 11 million uh, of those die. So that's, that represents around 20% of all causes of mortality worldwide. That's, that's a big problem. And just keep in mind that even the survivors of sepsis may continue to have uh, long-term sequelae. Uh, so prevention is actually the, the name of the game, you know, uh, be it either in, in, in terms of uh, vaccinations, uh, hand hygiene, uh, trying to avoid infection, focusing on high-risk groups, and awareness, awareness, awareness. It's important that we prom uh, promote awareness, not just within the public, but also within healthcare professionals as well. So there are two ways to prevent sepsis. One way is to avoid infection. So prevention of microbial transmission and infection. So st strategies and interventions like vaccinations, like hand hygiene, 
uh, is important. Just keep in mind that there's also uh, this linked uh, relationship between COVID-19 and, and sepsis. So uh, the vaccination that is under uh, that is being done nowadays uh, is is also can be thought of as as one of the strategies to prevent sepsis. The second strategy to prevent sepsis is to prevent an infection from evolving into sepsis. So uh, we could, let's say that we could not actually prevent sepsis, uh, infection from happening. How can we have a mechanism in place for every rec recognition and prompt intervention? So in 2017, in May of 2017, uh, uh, this uh, you know magnificent resolution was passed uh, you know thanks to the efforts of uh, the global sepsis alliance led by uh, professor conrad and his uh, colleagues uh, and this was a big moment for uh, the work on on sepsis uh, uh, um, that year actually more than 14 countries have introduced some systematic approaches to sepsis awareness prevention and intervention I'm going to mention them by name just to say that, uh, you know, to give that recognition, but also to push for more countries to do more work. So the UK, the US, Canada, Brazil, Mexico, Ireland, and Kenya, Spain, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Sudan, Uganda, Nigeria, and Malawi. But as you could see, there are way, way more countries that need to also to do the efforts. In 2019, uh, Australia, France, and Sweden have announced national sepsis campaigns. So uh, this also kind of links to how when we have uh, a resolution with, with, with clear directions, that would help uh, towards uh, the efforts at the national level as well as the uh, facility level. So the sepsis uh, resolution had a number of uh, items. So the Number one, uh, it asks countries to introduce sepsis work into the national health system strengthening. It also highlighted the infection prevention and control aspect of, of the sepsis work and how can we integrate that into, into uh, the national level as well as the uh, regional and facility level. Uh, AMR, antimicrobial resistance, is a big problem. So the resolution talked about antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, and having those uh, initiatives, uh, you know, at, at healthcare facilities and, and beyond is, is, is very much needed to uh, prevent sepsis. Also, we have to have a standardized and optimal care. So that was the, the, the fourth item of the resolution. Uh, I talked about public awareness, and this was the fifth item of the resolution. So there's no way that we could bring the number of deaths and, and, and problems from sepsis down without addressing those, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the public awareness and without empowering uh, patients and families. Uh, training for all healthcare uh, professionals about uh, different interventions like the sepsis bundles, et cetera, and having those uh, uh, quality initiatives in place, which I will talk about uh, in a moment, uh, is important uh, aspect of the sepsis efforts. Uh, of course, we can do uh, and improve without research. So research was a, as, as a big item of the resolution. Uh, 
epidemiological surveillance is is important, and the resolution highlighted the you, using ICD to establish uh, the prevalence and the surveillance of, of sepsis uh, throughout countries and and regionally and globally. And finally, the sepsis resolution also introduced the World Sepsis Day, which is on uh, September 13th. So make sure that. Uh, September 13th of this year that you contribute to, to sepsis work in, in whatever way, shape or form. Uh, of course, the resolution also highlighted some specific asks from the uh, World, uh, World Health Organization as well. So that concludes the first part of my talk. Now I'm gonna talk about the sepsis quality improvement initiatives. But just to give some basics of, uh, to, to some of the audience, uh, you know, there's something called the sepsis bundle or the sepsis six. And just to uh, be reminded about it, it includes three gives and three takes. So you give three and you take three. So whenever you have, uh, uh, you know, diagnosed and uh, 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 recognized sepsis early on, you want to give oxygen, you want to give uh, IV fluid uh, resuscitation, and you want to give broad-spectrum IV antibiotics. So what do you want to take? You want to take appropriate blood cultures before you start in the antibiotics. You want to take blood for lactate as well as uh, you want to measure urine output. So timing is everything when it comes to, to uh, preventing sepsis mortality. Uh, this study showed that any delay in sepsis recognition beyond one hour results in increased mortality. And, and, it, and it's pretty clear here that, uh, you know, the sepsis bundles I, I mentioned, uh, you have to have a mechanism in place, be it in the emergency department, be it in, in the inpatient setting, to have ALV recognition. So you could actually start the intervention right away, which would save lives. The impact of antibiotics administration uh, timing on mortality is also uh, well established. So this study back in 2017 showed that uh, delay in antibiotic uh, administration beyond uh, hour results in increased uh, uh, mortality from sepsis. Uh, this study also showed that based on our understanding of the importance of the timing of the intervention, you could see here that between 2011 and 2015 on the left-hand side, that the uh, percentage of IV antibiotic administration for sepsis diagnosis within the first hour has increased. So, so that's, that's a very good way to kind of, uh, uh, implement the evidence uh, of, of early intervention. This uh, slide is uh, basically uh, borrowed from uh, Ron Daniels and, and it shows, it's, it's based on a database from the UK and the red line shows the antibiotic rate use and the yellow line shows the screening rate. And between 2015 to 2018, you see this very uh, beautiful increase in the screening rate and antibiotic rate. And with that, you see a reduction in, in, in mortality. So again, clear evidence that early intervention with the, with the uh, standardized bundles uh, would save lives. So now uh, over the next few slides, I'm just gonna talk about uh, sepsis quality improvement initiatives at the facility level, at state level as well as at the national level. 
So this study uh, is from the US and, and it basically, uh, it was 18 ICUs uh, in, in, in two states. It was, it was Idaho and another state. And what it showed uh, is the following. So the gray line is the, uh, you know, the percentage of compliance with the sepsis uh, uh, interventions and bundles. And the black line is mortality. And again, between 2004 and 2010, you see clearly that the uh, compliance went from 4.9% in those participating ICUs all the way up to 73%. And with that, you see a very nice drop in mortality from 21 all the way down to 8%. So again, clear evidence that uh, intervention and early intervention with standardized bundles would, would save lives. So what about state level? I have two states, one uh, from uh, New South Wales in, in Australia and the other is from uh, New York State. Uh, so the sepsis kills program is a, is a program that uh, focuses on early recognition uh, of patients that could potentially have sepsis and, you know, immediate uh, resuscitation and referral for specialized care uh, accordingly. They have a very nice, uh, you know, component to the program called between the flags. So is the patient between the flags? So remember that, that you know, what I talked about, how we can prevent sepsis, which is either by preventing uh, infections. So this is up here with the white uh, arrow. But then in case that you have an infection, these are the flags. So this is where you need to intervene at the yellow uh, line. Uh, this is the window of intervention that if you manage to have, inter you know, uh, recognize the patient and, and activate the uh, the sepsis intervention you could you could save lives. So again, this is uh, the the same idea with the with the flags, just to show you how this is implemented uh, on an electronic health record. So these are the blood pressure uh, lines, and you can see the yellow yellow the yellow lines, and then the red. So you don't you don't want patients to be in the red. So these are the areas that you could say uh, between the flags. The same applies for oxygen saturation. Uh, as, as, as well as uh, heart uh, respiratory rate. Uh, so in 2013, uh, the New York State mandated public reporting uh, uh, for sepsis and, and they mandated also sepsis uh, intervention. And, and it is clearly here that between 2014 and 2016, the uh, risk-adjusted hospital mortality from sepsis in New York have, have uh, dropped almost by half uh, of, of what it was at the beginning. Sorry, by 50%. So uh, what about at the national level? So this is a study from Australia and New Zealand, same thing, uh, early intervention with sepsis bundles shows uh, reduction in uh, sepsis-related mortality. Now, this is a busy slide, but I want you to focus on four countries that have uh, introduced uh, these interventions, Germany, uh, UK, Australia, and the US. And three out of those four countries actually have managed to reduce sepsis mortality by 50% over five years. So remember the, uh, the 11 million people that I 
mentioned uh, early on that die from sepsis on an annual basis. Now imagine if all countries had 50% reduction in sepsis mortality. Uh, that is, you know, millions and millions of lives uh, saved. So to summarize, I basically talked about the uh, 2017 sepsis resolution with the different uh, components of the resolution. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done by both member states as, as the WHO. So, uh, you know, from this uh, Congress, I ask, uh, you know, the WHO and, and, and all stakeholders within member states to do more efforts actually to address this very uh, important uh, global health problem that is claiming millions and millions of lives. I've also talked about some of the uh, interventions, uh, you know, the sepsis six bundles. These are very basic uh, bundles that if present in the uh, right department and, uh, you know, and acted upon by the right people, we could save, you know, uh, so many lives. And the evidence, I hope I convince you by now that the evidence is pretty clear that sepsis quality improvement initiatives would improve uh, sepsis related morbidity and mortality, both at the facility, state and national level. So with that, I would like to uh, thank you very much. And, and what I will do is uh, if there are any questions for, for, for my talk, uh, we could take those questions uh, while we're doing the, uh, the, the panel. So uh, now I'm gonna wear my other hat as, as, a, as a moderator and, and the chair for the session. And it would be my honor to introduce my, uh, you know, great and esteemed uh, panel. So starting, uh, I'm gonna go into alphabetical uh, order. So Dr. Neelam uh, Dinger Kumar, uh, is a panelist. She heads the recently launched WHO flagship initiative, a decade for patient safety uh, between 2020 and 2030. <clears throat> she leads the patient safety and risk management unit in, in the WHO uh, headquarters in Geneva. Uh, she leads the WHO's global efforts to providing strategic leadership and patient safety within the context of the universal health coverage. And that includes the implementation and, and, and the great work that she's done for the passage of the uh, World Health Assembly Resolution in 2019, titled Global Action on Patient Safety. So uh, she also led Blood Safety Unit after joining the WHO uh, between 2000 and uh, 2014. Uh, and she coordinated the WHO efforts in areas for patient safety and risk management. So uh, that is Dr. Neelam. And then uh, next is Mr. Alan Donnelly. He's executive chairman of the Sovereign Strategy. Having founded the company in 2000, he also currently serves as a non-executive director of Cosworth and on the council of the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. He's the convener of uh, a not-for-profit called the G20 Health and Development Partnership, which has done a great work advocating for healthcare agenda uh, throughout uh, the G20 and, and, and the G7 as well. Um, Alan served as a labor member of the European Parliament for 11 years from 1989, including two year period as a leader of the European Parliamentary Labor Party. While an MEP, Alan specialized in economic, monetary and uh, industrial affairs. And uh, 
you know, recently also the Global Services Alliance has uh, joined the G20 Health and Development Partnership. Uh, next is uh, Dr. Mike Durkin. He's a senior advisor on patient safety policy and leadership for the NIHR Imperial College Patient Safety Translational Research Center. He's a director for the academic partnership for the Global Patient Safety Collaborative launched in collaboration with the WHO in 2019 by the WHO and the UK government. He's a visiting professor at the Institute of Global Health Innovation, Imperial College London, and the University of West England. He's an associate non-executive director of the NHS Resolution and a chair of the management board of the NICE National Guidelines uh, Center. He was instrumental uh, in actually uh, helping establishing the Global Ministerial Summit on Patient Safety, which started by the UK and Germany uh, back in 2016. And he uh, was the NHS National Director for Patient Safety between 2012 and 2017. So next is uh, Dr. F uh, Frederick. So he's a chief medical officer for the Office of Quality and Patient Safety within the New York State Department of Health. He currently works with the New York State COVID, uh, on the New York State COVID-19 response, assisting the governor and the Department of Health. He's also the leading statewide development of quality measurement and improvement programs. He's responsible for innovative quality improvement programs, such as the, the New York State sepsis campaign, public reporting on cardiac services and stroke, office-based surgery, antibiotic stewardship, prenatal care, and other statewide programs. He's a practicing primary care physician providing HIV care in the Albany community. Next, uh, we have Dr. Uh, Gunter Bjonitz. Uh, He's a physician and surgeon by heart and education. He served as a president of the Berlin Chamber of uh, Physicians from 1999 to early 2021. He initiated and founded the German Coalition for Patient Safety in 2005, which is a leading institution in Germany. As a technical advisor to the German Ministry of Health, he contributed to projects within the European Commission and the Ministerial Summits on Patient Safety since uh, the beginning of the Ministerial Summit series. And last but not least, uh, Mr. Kualdeb Semi, he's the CEO of the uh, organization International Alliance for Patients Organization. He has an academic background in public health and law and has a passionate belief in improving access to services throughout digital health and justice services. As a managing director of an international children's legal center, he led a team of international lawyers improving the rights of the child, including right to health by applying remote courts. <clears throat> he has also served as a chief executive officer for an international mental health charity specializing in niche mental health services, supporting young people and adults with complex mental health. So as you could tell, we have this esteemed uh, panel. And let me just set the stage before I ask uh, every one of them for their opening statement. You know, again, uh, we have 11 million people that die from sepsis on an annual basis. Uh, up to 50 million people that get sepsis on an annual basis. Uh, in, in New York, uh, in the US alone, sepsis treatment uh, basically cost more than 60 billion US dollars. So 
as you could tell that this is a big uh, global health problem. And I would say that it's overlooked. And, and basically, hopefully through our discussion, uh, A, we want to highlight why focusing on, on sepsis is, is, a, is, is actually a great patient safety initiative, but then how can we, uh, you know, through this uh, hour of discussion, uh, come up with some uh, practical implementation uh, efforts towards be it either the resolution of sepsis in 2017 or the patient safety resolution in 2019, or many of the declarations that come out of the, of the G20 uh, throughout the years. So I'm gonna start uh, by asking uh, Dr. Neelam uh, Dengra Kumar to make her uh, opening statement. So Neelam. Thank you very much indeed. And um, it's a great opportunity to connect with all of you. Um, greetings from WHO Patient Safety Flagship from Geneva. I'm really, really honored to speak at this panel at the World Sepsis Congress 2021. I must say, uh, Dr. Abdulillah, absolutely. Combating sepsis is a great patient safety strategy, and I fully support the topic of this uh, session. Uh, as you mentioned yourself, WHO's work on patient safety is shaped by the World Health Assembly Resolution, WHA 72.6, which was adopted in 2019 on global action on patient safety. And, you know, find relationship with sepsis, and particularly this resolution urges member states to integrate and implement patient safety strategies in all clinical programs and risk areas as appropriate to prevent avoidable harm to patients, which are related to either to procedures or to products or to devices. And it refers in particular to infection control and sepsis management, as well as to minimize the risk of inaccurate or late diagnosis and treatment. So I just want to emphasize that when it comes to sepsis and patient safety, there's absolutely, uh, it's fundamental to have an integrated patient safety strategy to combat sepsis. And these, this strategy includes action by patients and families, by health workers who provide care, and by health system for effective, safe, and timely service delivery, as you mentioned, the importance of timeliness. So just on three points, to enhance the role of patients, there's an urgent need to increase public awareness on the risk of progression to sepsis from infectious diseases. And this can be done through health education, including on patient safety, uh, in order to ensure that prompt initial contact could be made between the affected person and the healthcare system. Secondly, to equip health professionals, there's a need to develop and provide training to all health professionals, as you also emphasize as part of the sepsis resolution of 2017, this training on infection prevention and patient safety, and particularly on the importance of recognizing, patient, uh, recognizing sepsis as a preventable and time critical condition with urgent therapeutic need, and also to communicate with patients and families uh, to use sepsis as, as the sort of, you know, understanding of sepsis and to enhance public awareness. So there's a role of health professionals, very, very important, and to equip them with training and with capacity. And then the foundation of it is provided by the health system. So the importance of strong and functional health system needs to be recognized which includes both organizational strategies and therapeutic strategies in order to improve patient safety and also to improve outcomes from sepsis. And for effective, safe, and timely service delivery, 
The health system needs to provide safe staffing levels, supportive uh, working environments, create safety cultures, and strengthen teamwork and communication. So I think these are some of the opening uh, you know, remarks I would like to make, particularly to show the interrelationship between sepsis and, and patient safety and how uh, actually combating sepsis is an extremely important and a great patient safety strategy. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Neelam. So, so next I'll go to uh, uh, Alan Donnelly. So Alan, uh, if you want to give your opening remarks. Thanks very much, uh, Abdelayla, and it's great to see you uh, in Saudi Arabia. And I want to congratulate the Saudi Arabian presidency and the Saudi Patient Safety Center under your leadership last year for uh, putting patient safety so high on the agenda. And of course, the great thing is that the Italian presidency of the G20 has kept patient safety uh, high at the agenda for, for this year's G22. Um, I, I want to deal with um, how we engage political leaders uh, in addressing this issue, because if we're going to achieve uh, the Sustainable Development Goal 3, um, there are some massive things that need to be done. And of course, we're seeing this now with pandemic preparedness and response and the whole issue of antimicrobial resistance and so forth. Um, but there are some things through uh, accelerated progress where we could make a big impact on uh, achieving SDG 3. And I think in relation to the figures you gave about the 11 million deaths and the 50 million people who are impacted by sepsis each year, with a concerted effort and with giving practical tools to people, um, we can actually make a big impact here when it comes to um, health system strengthening and patient safety. Some of the other initiatives that need to be addressed, of course, are, are considerably more complex but this is not as complex as, as some of the issues that need to be addressed. Uh, as, uh, as Neelam has said, uh, training is a critical thing, a very basic training. Also, I, I think we're learning as a result of COVID-19 that we have to record um, incidents that, that are occurring in uh, the global health system. We've got to find a better way of measuring them so that people are using common standards to record um, how people are being affected or dying uh, of some of these issues. But you know, the one thing you didn't talk about, but I know you've got the figures, um, and I know that uh, the OECD have looked at this in a broader sense from the point of view of patient safety. The liability, for example, in hospitals across the world, I know just in our own national health system, uh, in Britain, the liability, financial liability across the world, where patient safety is compromised, perhaps through um, someone developing sepsis, um, or uh, the, the social consequences of someone being disabled as a result of, uh, of suffering from sepsis when they're then discharged and they're unable to participate uh, in, actively in the labour market, which may impact their family or uh, impact their own lives. For politicians who are not health specialists, we've got to present in very simple terms, what is the socioeconomic consequence of not addressing this issue? And what is the socioeconomic consequence of addressing this? And what are the tools that we need? And so what we'll be doing, and we're delighted that the Global Sepsis Alliance, thanks to your encouragement 
and of course Professor Conrad are part of the G20 Health and Development Partnership. We want to make sure that we look at this from a clinical point of view, but in order, in order to address uh, a much wider political group of people, what we need to do is look at it from an economic perspective too. And we're doing it successfully now in the G20 Health and Development Partnership um, by advocating joint health and finance ministers meetings. And I hope that in the coming months, either during the Italian presidency or in the Indonesian presidency next year, that we can have uh, a joint health and finance minister meeting look at the socio-economic consequences um, of properly addressing uh, this, this, this terrible problem which impacts uh, low, middle and high-income countries. Thank you very much, uh, Alan. So uh, next I'll move to uh, Dr. Mike Durkin. So Mike, uh, if I give your opening statement. Thank, thanks, Abdullah. And, and thank you also for the opportunity to, to join everybody else in, in what's a great panel uh, and, a, and a great opportunity to, to, to work together across, across the globe. Um, uh, and without the, and there is a risk of, of repeating uh, other people, so I, other people's views, which I think we're, we're pretty united on many of them. So I'll, I will try and just concentrate on what I think are some of the learning points um, that we've we've developed over our, our, our national patient safety improvement program over over the last um, decade or so. And uh, and obviously here I really do want to echo Jeremy Hunt's. Uh, view in terms of supporting the work that Ron uh, Daniels has led uh, across uh, with the Sepsis Trust across the UK. Um, but we also have to recognise that, as, as was described by Jeremy, that it, this is as much a cultural concern than it is a technical concern. Uh, and, and in that cultural concern, I also recognise Alan's point about the socioeconomic uh, element to it. And if we if we marry those cultural issues and the socio-economic issue, then this becomes a, a key, not just a key safety element, but it's, it's a key structural change that we need to put in place across our systems that those these ever going and ongoing issues of safety and quality need to be at the highest level of our system, whether that's the system at the hospital level at the board level, whether it's at the system in terms of local government or regional government, or whether it's at national and global government level, we need to make sure it's at those levels that these discussions are taking place, because we can no longer put up with the, with the differences that occur across our nations and the differences that occur in terms of the costs and, and the uh, resources we're putting into place. That's my first point. The second one, I think, is to recognise what Jennifer said in her opening uh, work, Jennifer Gardy earlier, about the need for a national integrated surveillance programme. And I think I would suggest we need an international uh, integrated surveillance programme uh, for this work. Um, now, we know that we've produced elements of those in terms of the dashboards that, that you've identified from the countries that you, you demonstrated in your, uh, uh, your piece. Um, but we need to do this on a global system and we need to also, therefore, agree on a common set of standards for that, a common set of, as Alan says, reporting mechanisms. We need leaders to be put in place and support uh, the resources that need to be put in place at a local level, whether that's owned at a national system uh, like ours or whether it's a multi-system multi approach to healthcare. We need to put those in place. 
The third element is the one that I think is recognised by this uh, Congress, and that is that the leadership challenge uh, that is required to ensure that not just the patient and the family are really placed at the centre of, of their own model of, or pathway of care, but the healthcare workers uh, at whatever level are also placed at the centre of the discussions that are taking place. And we've known, we now know, particularly with, over this last year, and I'm sure it will be continuing for many months to come, uh, the impact on healthcare worker safety uh, with regards to ongoing issues with this current pandemic. But that has always been the case. And there have always been healthcare workers who've suffered uh, either through nosocomial infections or, or the lack of attention to their care from good infection control prevention methodologies. And that's the other element is that. But this is a global as well as a national and local uh, challenge. And as such, we, we, we need to continually learn from each other. So the other element for me in terms of even if we have an integrated system of, of surveillance, we need an integrated system of learning. Uh, and that needs to take place at a, at a global collaborative level where there are no major leaguers here. We're all in the same league together. This isn't a Premier League versus a, uh, a lower level of soccer. This is a global system for all of us to work together and support each other, uh, as has been laid out by, the, the, uh, by Dr. Tedros uh, and his aspirations. So in the UK, just briefly, what we've done is try to integrate those processes in terms of dashboards, in terms of using early warning scores, the Royal College of Physicians News score, to try and also ensure that there is a, an ICP control toolkit uh, that is absolutely at the corner uh, and cornerstone of everything we do. Uh, but this has to be seen, and I'm, we have it was mentioned once uh, briefly by Christopher Murray. I think this also has to be seen within the continuing growing context uh, of antimicrobial resistance and, and the inexorable rise of gram-negative uh, bloodstream infections, particularly those on E. coli. Because unless we also recognise this importance, then we will be losing a lot of the armamentarium that we have to be able to support the rapid introduction of anti appropriate antibiotics uh, when they're needed. So the recognition that these are dual elements uh, that we really need to work on uh, at the same time. So we create a systemic as well as a systematic approach uh, to improving the care we offer our patients in whatever setting uh, from not getting serious infections. Thank you. I'm sure I'll come in later. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mike. Uh, so next I'll go to uh, Dr. Marcus Friedrich. Thank you. Thank you, Abdullah. Um, and I agree with you. I think that um, sepsis is a great patient safety strategy, but also could be a great health policy. And what we've done in New York State is just one example. When we started back in 2010, 2011, to look at the data, there was a huge variation in mortality by hospitals, uh, in, in hospital mortality by about fivefold. And um, I think what you mentioned earlier is, was this because sepsis was mostly overlooked is probably a question, or what Mike was just saying, um, that it could be a cultural problem. And we thought that we would um, take this head on. And we passed a law in New York State that we called uh, Rory's Regulation in honor of Rory Staunton. Um, where we that had three pieces. First, that we uh, mandated that the hospital should have evidence-based protocols in place because we just think that 
that was missing from a global uh, approach here, at least in New York. Um, that we also the second component that Mike just mentioned, the training component, we thought was important that the hospitals need to train their staff on that. And then the third, that they would share data with us. And the law is in place since 2013, and you already. Abdulela, in, in your presentation, showed like the results are uh, pretty impressive. Um, it's not 50%, but 30% absolute reduction, which is really um, a result of improving care by the hospitals to the patients here in New York and also saving lives. And, you know, what better patient strategy could there be by, you know, directly saving lives um, in, in uh, reducing the mortality from sepsis in these hospitals? Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So, so next I go to Dr. Bionitz. Uh, Hi there, everybody. Uh, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I don't know how uh, long my connection will work uh, from here, so I try to make it short. Uh, so first, thank you for the uh, action against sepsis because it teaches us a lot how to deal with special health issues and, and special threats. But if we want uh, to come to real outcomes and to a real change in healthcare, we have to act on two levels. The first one is the political level. Uh, that means that politics very often is about numbers. So how much do we spend for antibiotics, for hospitals, for nurses, and not enough about humans. And very often uh, political leaders are organizing systems that are organized like an assembly line with people working one after the other instead of together. And uh, to be successful on the political level, it's quite simple to change the strategy from decimating diseases, decimating costs, decimating maybe too much hospitals, into a strategy of optimizing care. And if you put it in a question, uh, then you just ask, how do we optimize care in Germany or in Saudi Arabia or where else within the next 10 or 20 years? And we, you will get a lot of answers. Uh, secondly, uh, if you want, we want to promote uh, patient safety uh, in uh, uh, special. Uh, we have to put it also in a positive frame because patient safety is not a funny issue. Uh, neither sepsis is, but if we see it as a chance to take action uh, to provide better care. We do good things for patients and also, of course, good things for the caregivers. So once again, a positive frame is very important to be successful with uh, your political uh, actions in healthcare. And uh, if I make it even shorter, there was a business model in the, in the, in the past uh, saying promoting fear, selling hope. And I think the future business model will be promoting hope, selling solutions. And selling solutions, and now I come to the second important level, is the level of the caregivers. Uh, all my speakers before me have addressed the importance of caregivers, of doctors and nurses, uh, to recognize sepsis, uh, to act on patient safety, to tell the right diagnosis, and to act as soon as possible. And so uh, we expect, as a society, and from the patient's point of view, an utmost level of professionalism and, you, uh, and humanity. And when you look at the working conditions of caregivers, it's absolutely the contrary. So maybe not to professionalism, uh, but uh, especially to inhumane working conditions. So if we want our patients to be treated well, we have to treat our doctors and nurses well. 
And uh, when you once again look at how to promote it, uh, better care, you can learn from sepsis that it's not the doctor's issue or maybe the patient's fault, but it's teamwork because everyone is able to, to, uh, to somehow find out that there's more than something not in order with a patient with more than 38 degrees Celsius. So it's teamwork, it's a question of awareness, and it's a leading question if we have enough time for care, and uh, which might be quite new, if we have time to talk, to create teams. Because normally most doctors and nurses are working like Charlie Chaplin at an uh, assembly line, being very exhausted at the end of the day. And future care means we have teams and teams talk to each other and talk to the patient and they talk before an event. And of course, they talk after an event and this needs time and this needs money. And I think investing money in humans and in working conditions might be the best thing to provide better care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, so next I'll go to uh, Kual Debsemi from IAPO. So your opening statement, uh, Kual Debsemi. Uh, thank you, Abdullah and the board of um, uh, World Sepsis Day. I think I'll start off by saying that we have a great opportunity in the uh, WHO's uh, Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030. That this um, is the driving force for us now to look at how our health systems look at everything, and that includes sepsis. So it neatly fits in. For the next 10 years, we have this great opportunity to push everything in its slipstream. Second, I think we have to really look at how the whole spectrum of uh, prevention to care and then also to rehabilitation, you know, once after the sepsis recovery, and even palliative care has become, is re uh, reappraised afresh with the view of how patients can be engaged in this. Uh, patients can, one, bring in uh, insights that may be able to make things more effective, maybe improve the reach, uh, most definitely improve the efficiency of the programs. And lastly, I think very important is that patients can add to the information and education and uh, undo some of the misinformation and infodemic problems that we are having. So patient engagement and co-creation in sepsis is critical. And so is it critical in the World Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so um, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, Dr. Neelam uh, and ask you. Let me let me put it this way: uh, every every year, 11 million people die from sepsis. Uh, in uh, according to you know, we we know that at least in low middle income countries, 2.6 million people die from unsafe care. Uh, on an annual basis, uh, AMR kills 700,000 people. And by the year 2050, if we don't do anything to AMR, 10 million people will die from AMR on an annual basis. Now we've got a number of uh, resolutions, you know, uh, we've got uh, the World Health Assembly's resolution. We've got declarations from multilateral uh, uh, organizations like G20, et cetera. Uh, 
why is it that we're still having an implementation problem? And 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 maybe you, if you could answer this question, uh, thinking through your great work uh, on on the uh, the 2019 uh, Global Action on Patient Safety Resolution, and how can the the 2017 resolution would learn from some of the efforts that you've done uh, in, in in combating uh, sepsis? Thank you, Abdulillah. The resolution on um, sepsis and the assembly resolution on patient safety are very complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. And as you recognize that the resolutions uh, are policy statements, which is the commitment by governments from, from around the world to take action on a particular topic and prioritize it. But there's a, there's a gap in when it comes to national prioritization and what is required is building the case and actually uh, looking into the local data, what, is the, what are the real issues? So there's a need for prioritization at national level and where international partners, WHO and, and uh, organizations who are working on the area of sepsis and patient safety could be facilitatory. So I think the implementation gap is primarily because of lack of prioritization at country level. And it is really important for us to invest into looking into where the gaps are, whether there's a knowledge gap or there's a policy gap or there's a delivery gap or there's a communication gap. And how do we fill up and, you know, in the implementation gap by addressing these gaps in either in knowledge or in policy or in delivery? And um, with prioritization come resources. So until unless there is some sort of uh, institutional framework and resources to implement the uh, program, we will not find sustainability. So resolutions, of course, ident identify the key strategies which need to be implemented. But when it comes to actual implementation, it requires policy, strategy, plan, and institutional framework with clear uh, roles and responsibilities at national level, working with partners and, you know, mainly the the civil society and professional organizations, and most importantly, to have patients and families and communities engaged. And I must say in this particular aspect of, you know, just building on to what um, Kamaldeep mentioned, that uh, it is absolutely vital to utilize all opportunities of engaging with public and increasing public uh, patients' awareness and engagement on very pertinent topics of patient safety and sepsis. And we are really, uh, in this case, have a great opportunity to link with World Hand Hygiene Day, as which is in two weeks' time, and also World Patient Safety Day, because these provide great platforms to highlight the issues, to engage uh, policymakers, to engage patients and, and communities and stakeholders, so that the there's ongoing advocacy and the need for prioritization is, is maintained and they, it is backed with sufficient resources as well as institutional frameworks and, and systems to implement the action which have been agreed. So just to some, just basically my opinion about um, the, you know, what are the sort of safe several opportunities to, um, to fill this implementation gap? Over to you, thank you. Thank you, Neelam. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'm gonna move to, to Alan and, you know, uh, last year through, through the OECD uh, report on the economics of patient safety talked about uh, uh, the uh, you know the financial then and the economic impact uh, of sepsis, which is only in the U.S., which was was estimated to be more than sixty billion U.S. dollars. Now, 
just to follow up on, on the points you've mentioned about how to engage uh, politicians and policymakers, uh, uh, COVID-19 last year killed around 2.6 million people. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a major uh, pandemic and, and there's this huge uh, global response to it, which is ongoing. Uh, how come that uh, a problem that kills 11 million people, uh, you know, not to mention the 50 million that uh, not necessarily die, but end up with, with, with all kind of long-term problems. How come this is not getting, uh, you know, recognition and, and awareness by, by policymakers? Is it our problem as healthcare uh, community that we're not making it, uh, you know, uh, uh, available and uh, reachable to policymakers, or is it uh, more complicated than that? Well, Abdullah, you know, up till the end of last year, um, Goldman Sachs estimated that G20, G20 countries um, spent twelve trillion dollars mitigating COVID nineteen. Twelve trillion trillion dollars. I have no idea how much it is currently. I have no idea what the current figure is. And so when you think that just under 400 billion investments would have helped to deliver the SDG3, I think what's happened is politicians now realize that global health security and health system strengthening is something that you uh, have got to invest in. And so what we've been able to do, as you know, because you're one of our global ambassadors for the, the G20 partnership, we've changed the narrative now so that politicians talk about health investments rather than just health spending. And that means you've got to be able to measure the, um, the return on investment. And I think that uh, if you think about some of the, the relatively simple measures, setting aside antimicrobial resistance, which is a more complex issue. But when you think of, um, you know, the issue of hygiene, um, some of the measures, uh, we're now working on with, with a number of institutes, including Harvard and WIFO, which is in Germany, on helping politicians to understand the return on investments in health. And the pro I can tell you the problem with the whole debate about health in the past. And we found this uh, when I first became the chair of the G20 Health and Development Partnership at the beginning of 2017, when health, health wasn't even on the agenda of the G20, is that um, health, that, that the whole debate in health operates in silos. So you have disease silos where the experts get together, whether it's tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, malaria, ne neglected tropical diseases, sepsis, antimicrobial resistance, and what we've, what we've tried to do, um, as you know, in the G20 Health and Development Partnership, is we've tried to improve um, access to basic information for politicians who are not specialists. And we've tried to get away from this siloed approach to the debate on health, because I think the reason why we underperform is that a lot of the information is too technical, because it's drawn up, and this is not a criticism, by the way, but a lot of it is put together by clinicians who are scientists and, and trained. And what we've been doing over the last few years is, you know, simplifying the information. So, for example, the report that we published a few weeks ago, which you, I think you wrote the, the conclusions to, and uh, Dr. Tedros wrote the forward to it uh, on patient safety, 
drew together a wide range of people, including the International Labour Organization, the head of the International uh, Nursing Confederation, um, you know, a whole range of people who are not scientific uh, people, they're not clinicians, but who understand that you've got to have a different sort of dialogue when you're talking about global health security. Now, we are making progress on this, but I do hope that now that the Global Sepsis Alliance is part of this partnership, we can we can look at disseminating information to politicians who deal with economic policy or climate change or um, you know all sorts of policies that are not directly uh, linked to uh, health in its very purest sense to get that information out to them. Because I think by doing that, then what we can do is we can reach the people that Mike was talking about before, which are people out, the public health people out in towns and regions. Um, and we can start changing the dynamics of all of this. And of course, the big thing is if we can work out what the return on investment is, then you can look at how you can repurpose that finance to deal with things like research and development into antimicrobial resistance or mental health uh, services or in you know in low income countries it may be just basic access to diagnostics and so forth and and that's why i think we have to link the economic and the 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 uh, health arguments together in the same way now that climate change and economics are um, irrevocably linked together because if you do that you get a much broader group of politicians who will look to uh, take up your arguments and help to find solutions. Thank you, Alan. So, so Mike, uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned, you've talked about uh, something that I'm very much uh, passionate about, which is this whole uh, notion of global uh, uh, learning. So having a system in place for global adverse events as well as global learning. Now, the, the, the biggest issue is for us to have a global learning platform, we have to be using the same, uh, you know, uh, taxonomy. And, and uh, that, that was kind of behind, uh, you know, the reason behind the efforts for the gender declaration to have the international classification of disease as a foundation for international classification of adverse events, which we don't have. Uh, I think we still have an opportunity because the ICD-11 will go in effect in January 2022. So, and I've had discussions with, with some of the task force from the WHO, and they're still open to the idea of the ICAE, International Classification of Adverse Events. So just, just from your perspective, you know, uh, uh, how, how? What do you think about that? And you, you did talk about uh, IHR, which is for surveillance for infections. But then uh, we don't we don't have an equivalent IHR for address events. And whether or not it's it's time to to kind of think about having a global surveillance uh, system for address events as well, not just necessarily for infections. So, so it, thanks, Abdullah. Um, uh, and and also, I think we have to thank the the ministerial summit that was that was held in Jeddah uh, that actually really brought to the fore this the issue that we've all faced with, which is that we don't speak with a common language. We don't have a common language um, for what would be arguably the biggest issue for patients who are fearful that something will go wrong at some stage during their care, and that we then may not look after them appropriately after that or even during the continuing piece of care. 
Um, uh, and it's it's very sad that, that we have to recognize that we don't speak the same language. Um, so the, the, the drive to create a common taxonomy through the new ICD-11 approach is, 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 is onwards is, is a great thing to, to try to do. Just in, as, as an example, so there are many different uh, codes, therefore, that someone could put in that would uh, be classified as an infection code or a sepsis code or, uh, across the current system. And if you look at some of the other harms that we have that are also very, very cost uh, cost uh, accelerators in the system, say, for example, blood clots uh, and venous thromboembolia, there are currently 47 different codes that someone could put in. So we have we have a very limited approach into how we can actually work together to speak uh, with a common goal. So the key thing, therefore, is to come up with a solution for this. Um, I think it has to be geared around the taxonomy, but it also has to be, I think, probably um, in one that where we also link this with the other driver for change. And this is the piece that Alan was talking about in terms of the benefit, cost benefits to the systems. Um, um, uh, now, we've started to try to do this work in terms of a collaborative learning approach um, with uh, the great uh, offices of, of, of WHO uh, in setting up a global patient safety collaborative for low and middle-income countries. Um, and we've started that with the first four countries. Um, uh, and you may remember that's uh, uh, India, uh, Kenya, Mongolia, and Pakistan as test beds, really as test beds to try to see how we can work and create a common language of training and education, of leadership, support and development, and of research capacity and capability. Uh, one of the key elements that keeps coming out when, we, when we're talking, and, and this year we have been limited by doing all of our talking uh, on Teams or Zoom um, or platforms such as that. Um, one of the common elements that keeps coming up is, what, of our, what about our reporting systems? How do we help and enable our reporting systems to be better? But also, how do we make them appropriate and accessible to not just staff and healthcare workers at every hierarchical level, but also patients um, who also would like to have access to these systems? And so I think one of the elements that we're, we're learning now is that this is a common issue and, and healthcare workers inevitably want a common platform. Um, so I don't think there's a, a necessarily an issue that, at that level. Uh, there was a, an issue, I think, and probably in some systems there's an issue of fear, uh, fear of reporting and fear of reporting uh, when things go wrong in case that you might then uh, face repercussions for that. And so that brings us up into this question of how do we create a reporting system that acknowledges a just culture that doesn't get in the way of accountability? So when you report something and 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 it is uh, by a failure of action that you should have done, then you are accountable for that. But in, inevitably, we want a reporting system that does creates an appropriate just culture for that reporting. Um, I think what we found is that uh, this can only happen. The collaborative is funded by uh, outside sources from these countries because they can't afford to fund it themselves. So I think one of the key elements for us is to find a way of using the good offices of philanthropic uh, systems and supporters, as well as WHO as a convening power to come up with some solutions for this. Now, G20 and dare I say it, G7 could be a, a, an ideal platform for this, but it needs to be a cohort of countries that will work together. And I just also would maybe suggest that 
the test beds, uh, particularly in a frugal innovation environment, would be ideally suited to many lower mid-income countries who may not actually get to the table of the G20 group. So for me, it's how do we create that, that energy level, which is definitely a drive up. So it's a push. Um, we don't have to pull. I think it's a push from there. So I think for me, it's let's set up some, some global exemplar systems at a frugal level and see whether we can work then. And then we drive that up uh, through the system. There's no doubt that the healthcare workers on the front line and patients on the front line want this to happen. Thank you very much, Mike. So, so I've, I've seen a number of questions from the audience about how to reconcile uh, this uh, notion of early intervention with, with broad spectrum antibiotics and how do you reconcile that with antimicrobial resistance? So, so I think Marcus, is very well uh, positioned to 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 answer that, uh, giving giving your work in in in, uh, in in New York State and and uh, there there is that fear. Uh, is it is it justified or does the evidence uh, you know do you have is there an evidence that shows uh, that we don't actually uh, worsen AMR if we if if we intervene early. Yeah, I think this is a valid question, and I think that is uh, also one of the concerns that we heard from um, frontline physicians, from ER physicians and workers in the emergency rooms. Um, we have extensively researched that in New York, and we also have collaborated on papers to to see if this is really an issue, the antimicrobial resistance that is driven by a protocolized approach. And we have found absolutely no, no evidence that this is driving up um, uh, infections um, such as C. difficile infections in the hospitals or others. Um, I, I still have to come across a study, a good done, a well done study that is showing that this, um, that the uh, amount of antibiotics uh, is actually um, on, a, on a bigger population health level harmful for what we are doing. Because I think on the sepsis side, it's always this balance between you, you know, it is a highly a high mortality disease process that sepsis is versus um, you know being too much uh, too much worried about the antimicrobial resistance. We have um, we have changed our approach to this, and um, we we are education ed educating the physicians and the hospitals um, to a quick de-escalation to start with broad spectrum antibiotics, and then to quickly de-escalate um, the antimicrobial. Uh, therapies in in the hospitals, and I think that uh, people understand that. But I think the 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 verdict is still out. I I still hear now in 2021 concerns about this, and I I I think that um, we are currently engaging with a group of researchers on another project to look again at this issue, and we will probably have the data at the end of 2021, if not even 2022, to see if there is really um, you know, a hint of evidence about this. I have not seen that so far. But again, it is a, it's a good question, uh, well raised. But I think that, um, you know, as a physician, uh, do no harm. And I think that the, the adverse effects from 
um, not giving antibiotic in a case of sepsis is probably weights like stronger and larger to me than um, being concerned, overly concerned about antimicrobial resistance that I might be drive, dri driving through uh, with these therapies. Thank you, uh, Marcus. So, so let me ask uh, Kualde. Now, uh, you know, some of the uh, practical interventions when it comes to uh, patient empowerment and, 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 and patient and families empowerment in sepsis is uh, patient and families uh, activated rapid response teams. So what does what does IAPO think about that? You know, are you familiar with with any literature that uh, is is promoting this uh, intervention? Because it has to deal with the with the early recognition and you know giving. If you if you're in a clinical setting where the nurse is is overwhelmed and and the patient could be deteriorating uh, without having someone actually uh, activating such a rapid response teams. So I think it would make a lot of sense to, to, to introduce such initiatives uh, in healthcare systems and in hospitals to have uh, patients' families also be part of the team and, 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 and train them about how they can activate such uh, rapid response teams. Yes, uh, thank, thank you very much, Abdullah. I, th I think this is where the um, WHO's patient and family engagement uh, framework uh, comes into play to patient safety, and it's obviously the AMR Action Fund as well was talking about the same issues. Uh, there are two two demarcations and the two what I call uh, great touch points. The first is the home. And there, I think for younger patients, the parents concerned um, are the main recognizers of uh, the early signs. Uh, so therefore, I think this uh, intervention should be targeting towards them, uh, including the carers into it. And the second is once the patient has entered into the healthcare system, meaning at the primary healthcare level, and then maybe even the tertiary at the hospital level. So we think um, the most important um, part is, as you said, in um, uh, to uh, two errors have a human, you know, in patient safety approach that, yes, we do make mistakes. So therefore, what you do is, for this instance, you say that, uh, yes, even if you have made a mistake, you don't think it's a uh, sepsis, but go to the hospital nonetheless. You know, you make this red route right down to the clinicians. Moment you, you as a parent, are, you think, suspect, uh, we don't care, you bring the uh, individual in quickly into the so that a professional can look at it and you can use some of the diagnostic toolkits to assess it because uh, if you're wrong uh, we forgive you that's part and parcel of this so you need a red route right into that uh, care system then once in the red route uh, once you're in the uh, care system I think this is where patients and uh, patient uh, families advocates have to develop that uh, framework of recognition and respect and uh, being taken seriously, you know. If uh, a patient or their um, relative says, I suspect uh, sepsis, then the thing should be escalated. So you need what I what I call the, the double uh, red line, you know. That it's only not only a single red route, it's a double red route that you ignore everything like uh, Rory's law was putting out. You, you just streamline it. 
it's better to be wrong than uh, right in these issues, you know. So it's almost with the COVID, we are learning the same lesson right now uh, that um, any suspected cases, please do the test. And then if you're wrong, that's fine. But uh, we need to make sure that um, our health systems are sensitive and specific enough, you know. Uh, that needs to be done. And lastly, I think the awareness program is a com combination. I think it should be, uh, I have been promoting uh, substance recognition in schools, saying that this is part and parcel of teachers' curriculum, uh, then should be part and parcel of the curriculum of uh, medical students. I think you and I were looking at the International Federation of Medical Students Association, and I remember when I asked them, how, how many units do they do uh, on sepsis in their course and training? And uh, all, the, all of them, the majority, the hundred or so we spoke at the World Health Assembly when things were much brighter and we could meet. What they said was no 15 minutes and some even say it was self-directed study. So there wasn't this program, whereas this is a cross-cutting effect. It should be from surgery right down to simple interventions, you know, any any invasive uh, sepsis should be discussed through that. So we need to bring that in. And uh, lastly, I think um, the level of uh, home care, I'm sure we can do something much better in self-care uh, side of things. Uh, we could get diagnostic kits that are cheaper and safer. Liquid flow tests are now available left, right, and center. They can be modulated. I think they, they should be introduced so that um, many of the health-prone uh, patients, especially those who are applying care at home through um, uh, using um, sort of uh, infusion pumps and have to punch your skin and issues, although they, they need to be looked at. But as I said, it's um, uh, the whole societal thing needs to be looked at because this should be re repositioned again uh, it should be that it's avoidable harm and it is unnecessary to spend money on this. You know, it's almost a sinful way of wasting precious health system money on this, which is preventable. Thank you. Uh, uh, Mike wants to come in. Yeah, thank, thanks, Abdullah. So I, I just want to support Kraldeep in, 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 uh, in the elements that he was talking about. And it links back to your previous point, uh, I think, about the silo silos in our in our system, um, and uh, the, we have to recognise that in still, in still, in even in the twenty first century, in many systems and many local systems, there is a power dynamic at play where our patients are not seen and their families are not seen as equal members of the journey that those families and are going on. Uh, and and families, we often talk about the patient being their own, their best expert of their of their their healthcare needs. They, they, they don't come to see us as healthcare professionals unless they reckon, often recognise that something is not quite right or family members recognise with the children there's something not quite right. Uh, and then we negate that, uh, that view of theirs when, once they've come into the institution. And I think we need to reset ourselves uh, on that process. Um, and and re we need to reset it very quickly, uh, I think, in the, in the way that our, our systems are developing. And if we translate that into the into the hierarchies that we have within our own, uh, if you like, at that level that you were talking about, where we have uh, almost a war game going on between sepsis, between AMR, between various interventions that could be taking place with the various 
systems that could could work together. If we pooled our resources and worked together, we'd be so much stronger, uh, and we'd have much more effect at the local level because w- whatever we talk about at the sort of the ivory tower distant uh, level, unless it's making a difference to that conversation that takes place between the the patient or their family and the nurse or the doctor in their own local system, we're we're wasting our time. So we've we've really got to get a a, a grip of that and and start to work together uh, in a much more cohesive and effective way and and use those people who are currently in place who are positioned to do that. Uh, As Alan said, let's let's get a grip with our politicians. Let's start to activate them. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Neelam? Thank you, Abdullah. I think it's a very, very important question about um, creating more synergies between pandemic preparedness, IPC, sepsis, and AMR uh, for both, uh, you know, uh, scale-up uh, action at national level and sub-national level, uh, and also um, actually making a difference at point of care. So, um, I just want to share that the Global Patient Safety Action Plan, which WHO has been developing um, after mandated um, by the World Health Assembly, and it's been a one year, more than one year long process, has really created some uh, great synergies in bringing these programs together. And uh, particularly, uh, you know, the strategic framework, which has been developed for the Global Patient Safety Action Plan for next 10 years, identifies the need for developing and sustaining multi-sectoral, multi-national synergies and solidarity and partnership to improve patient safety and quality of care. And in this particular strategic objective, it identifies the need for fully engaging all stakeholders who have a positive uh, sort of, you know, who can have a positive impact on patient safety and have a common understanding and shared commitment. So Mike touched upon it Kavadeep touched upon it as well, that common understanding and shared commitment of all stakeholders working with different programs so that we could successfully deliver the patient safety action plan and creation of networks and consultative meetings to understanding the commonalities and even uh, multi-sectoral initiatives and cross-geographical initiatives can advance the action on patient safety. So I must say that the Global Patient Safety Action Plan provides an opportunity for creating synergies between these two programs at the national and the global level, but at the at the at the point of care level and also at the patient's level, I think there are also great opportunities for synergies. If you look into these four areas: healthcare associated infections, AMR, pandemic preparedness, sepsis, and also I would add to it the safe uh, and appropriate and rational use of medications. They are all very much interrelated. Just to give you an example, inappropriate and excessive use of antimicrobials will lead to the threat of antimicrobial resistance. And in this case, uh, sepsis actually represents the most vital indication for the responsible use of effective microbials. And in the absence of uh, timely management of of sepsis, uh, including through effective uh, antimicrobials, sepsis could be universally fatal if you you don't really use timely and appropriately these medicines, uh, the the microbials. And um, so there are several tools WHO has created, and I think they can be extremely, extremely useful, particularly for engaging patients and increasing their awareness. Now I'm looking at the commonality between AMR, medication use, and also healthcare associated infections like the five moments for hand hygiene is an extremely important tool. 
which uh, you know identifies the moments where in in healthcare uh, healthcare uh, to prevent healthcare associated infection which are the five moments where you have to uh, you know make sure that the the specific moments where hand hygiene has to be performed before touching a patient before cleaning you know and before uh, having aseptic procedures body fluid exposures touching a patient or touching patient surrounding so these five moments five moments for hand hygiene we now have also taken this concept for five moments for medication safety and these five moments of medication safety also identify the five vital moments in treatment with medications where action can reduce the risk so which is starting the medication taking the medication adding new medication or reviewing medication and stopping medication so the point i'm taking that patients themselves are the unifier they are the ones which can really bring synergies into these program because ultimately you know the patient is the one who has to be fully engaged and aware how to how to identify these risk areas in the critical moment where action by patients and healthcare professionals will reduce uh, the risk of uh, sepsis and and also bring the synergies so opportunity for synergies at global level national level uh, and also local level uh, following the framework of the global patient safety action plan and through several patient engagement tools and strategies for engaging uh, communities we can actually bring, bring synergies uh, through enhancing the role of patients as well So with you. Thank you. Thank you Neelam uh Gunter so uh, uh you're you're back with us. Uh go ahead. I still I'm deeply convinced that patients everywhere have the right to get to receive the best possible care. And uh, if you want to uh deliver best possible care I think the key is how to get to the hearts of the doctors and nurses. and funny enough if you uh, do not address uh, doctors and nurses with new tasks or new regulations or new forms to fill out but if you take action in terms of care for the caregivers supporting them uh, teaching them how to communicate with patients in case uh, things went wrong how to communicate uh, with other professions then you get several you reach several goals with one attempt you get better patient safety you get a higher work for satisfaction you get less uh, burnout and less sickness leaves so once we start treating uh, caregivers as human beings and do everything we can do to support them to fulfill their mission i think this would be key that is uh, quite a challenge on the on an every level especially also on the political level because on the political level we talk about numbers and and costs and so on but uh, we all have to keep in mind that it's about humans human beings uh, with the uh, the caregiver side and also on the patient side so humanization would be one goal for me to address better care Thank you very much. So we have uh five, six minutes left. So I'm going to ask every one of you for uh you know for uh, a minute uh, kind of uh, message about how can we reach uh zero harm and you know I'm a big believer of 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 zero harm. Uh so these 50 million cases or 11 million deaths. Uh so if you were to pick one uh, strategy to to that we that could help us with the implementation what would that be so uh i'm i'm going to start uh, with uh, with alan 
Thanks, Abdulayla. My, my signal's a bit weak, so I'm afraid I've had to turn my, my camera off, so apologies. I think um, I, I think the the thing that could make the most rapid difference is the point that Gunda made. I do think that there is a cultural problem um, within the within primary health care where if if something if there is an incident, then the question is uh, in many in many places people are looking for someone to blame, and I do think that we need to have a, a, a significant cultural shift so that uh, if if there's an incident, then you know the patient needs to be informed, the family need, needs to be informed, and the frontline healthcare worker needs to be supported. Because if we do that, then we're going to get much more accurate reporting. And also, uh, we're not going to get into this, this mess of liability, which I think is blighting the way in which uh, primary health care is dealt with at the moment. So I think at the, at the local level, that's the cultural shift I'd like to see us have, not just for sepsis, but for patient safety generally. Thank you. Uh, so next, uh, I go to Marcus. Any final words? No, I I agree with Alan. I think um, you know cultural shift uh, makes sense. It's probably, and I think Mike mentioned that earlier as well. Um, it, it, like approaching this cultural shift, and it does not. I I don't believe that it has to be always from a policy perspective, but really that. Um, it could be down to the institutional level and uh, and approach this to improve um, morale and reduce burnout and drive this cultural shift um, down to the physician's level and patient level. And I think that is what I would also strongly argue, which would be um, that, that this would be probably the biggest effect of um, getting to that goal that you laid out in um, you know, zero harm. Thank you. So, uh, Kowaldib, any final words? I, I think this is needs to be integrated into the uh, WHO's uh, Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030, and it needs to be integrated with AMR vaccines for life as well, you know, adult vaccination, and it needs to be integrated into other programs as well. So I think the word is integration and family and patient engagement at the center. So let's make this uh, great patient safety story for the global patient safety um, agenda. And we have the World Patient Safety Day coming up uh, soon on uh, 17 September. So it'll be good to see how we can take this forward. Thank you. Thank you, Kualdib. So Mike, any um, final words? Okay, thank you. Thanks, Abdullah. Right, so I'll go for, in the words of a previous Prime Minister, um, education, 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 um, and education at three levels. <laughs> Edu education to support the patient so their health literacy improves and increases, so they're given the power to challenge. Uh, they're given the power to challenge then the next level, the professional level, whose educational standard often in this field is very low. So we need to educate, educate, educate based on evidence-based interventions that we know will create a preventable, this will move this into a preventable group. You know, sepsis is preventable if it's acted on early and you've showed the data for that. And the third level of education is at the system national level so that we challenge our politicians 
to challenge their own healthcare systems. That's the, where the dynamic needs to play. So we challenge our healthcare systems to change and adopt evidence-based approaches, early intervention, early intervention, and then a rapid assimilation of care. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, Gunther, next, any final words? Try to make it simple. Uh, we need two things. We need a positive strategy because if we put patient safety and sepsis as a threat for patients and a drama for doctors and nurses, then all these people will avoid it. If you put it in a positive uh, frame, that it's a chance to create better working conditions and to fulfill the caregiver's mission, then the rate of adoption is much higher. Second, we need better systems. Actually, we have good people and bad systems, and our systems are bad because our, within our systems, there is not enough communication and not enough cooperation. So when, you, when we think about our healthcare systems as networks, where uh, people can connect and talk and really cooperate uh, to provide values for patients and we have uh, reached our goal. So strategy and system. Thank you very much. And uh, last but not least, uh, Neelam, any final words? Thank you, Abdulillah. As uh, you're fully um, aware that the uh, Global Patient Safety Action Plan is, is a roadmap for next 10 years, and its main objective is to eliminate avoidable harm in healthcare. So the, it's titled as Towards Eliminating Avoidable Harm in Healthcare and creates a vision, a world in which no one is harmed in healthcare and every patient receives safe, respectful care every time, everywhere. So with that philosophy and vision, um, the strategies which actually have been identified and as part of the action plan are all towards zero harm. But it's a multi it's a multi modal strategy which we need to implement to reach zero harm, and uh, we need policies which are clearly defining that the governments are working towards eliminating avoidable harm in healthcare. We need high reliability systems. We need safety of clinical processes through identifying risk pro prone uh, procedures and and having standardized procedures. Patient family engagement. And health work education, as Mike mentioned, their skills development and their safety. We need information research and risk management and very robust reporting and learning systems to learn from where things have gone wrong. And we need very strong synergies and partnerships and solidarity. So I think these intertwined seven strategic objectives, which are outlined in the Global Patient Safety Action Plan, is the way to go to uh, achieve the zero harm uh, goal. And, um, and only then we can, um, you know, significantly see the outcome of reduction of harm. So, so far, the efforts have been on processes, but I think over a period of 10 years, if we implement this vision through this uh, framework of action, we can actually see a reduction in harm uh, in healthcare. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Neelam. And, uh, you know, I would like to thank uh, my, you know, our esteemed uh, panels, uh, Dr. Neelam Dingra Kumar, Dr. Mike Durkin, uh, Dr. Marcus, uh, who had to leave for, for another uh, session, uh, Kualdiv Semi and, and uh, Alan Donnelly and Dr. Gunter uh, Units. Uh, basically, you know, you've, you've, uh, you know, my thanks to everyone of the audience and apologies for not being able to answer all your questions. Uh, but please, 
if you heard any anything any useful information today so make sure that you share it not just with one person but with 10 persons and ask them also to share that information with 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 other 10 people and i think this is how we can uh, create momentum and 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 actually uh, you know, bring down some of these, uh, you know, major, major challenges that we're having. So with that, uh, I would like uh, to, uh, you know, finish this session and uh, please uh, carry on and, and uh, log in to, to the other sessions and make sure that you, you continue with today's sessions and tomorrow's sessions as well. Thank you all very much. Bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this possible. Session 3 will be available momentarily, and Session 4 and 5 will follow next Tuesday. As mentioned at the top, the full release schedule is available on the Congress website.